Hey guys, we're recording this episode on the 4th of July, aka Independence Day, because we are from America and we live in an apartment complex. Our neighbors like to set off fireworks all night. So, you know, it's poor timing on our part, I guess. We should have worked around that, but we're trying to get things done way, way ahead of time and get these episodes out, not out, but produced as quickly as possible, but still be able to give you the same amount of content and the same amount of energy that we have been giving you guys. But we're working on a different project right now as well, and we need to commit some more time to that. So that being said, we are still going to address issues and true crime as it comes up in the real world in real time. But instead of addressing it on the podcast directly, we will be addressing it more so on our social media, such as Instagram and Facebook. But Aaron, would you like to mention your side project? Yeah, um, I mean, not to give all the details, because, you know, we're a mystery podcast, so... Leave a little mystery? Yeah, leave a little mystery. Keep them coming back for more. Oh, okay. Um, But, uh... It's going to be a good bit of effort, um, so much so that this project will require more than just us, us two. Yeah, just us two. It's going to be a team effort. Yeah. So, um, it's going to acquire some of, some of our friends, which is going to be great. Yeah. Because who doesn't love working with their besties? Um, I don't know. But people who don't like it... Oh, okay. There's Magoo. Also, real quick. If you hear a lot of loud booming and cracking and stuff, that's the fireworks. Some things just can't be edited out. So, I'm sorry. But I'm gonna try. But, um... Yeah. So, I'm excited for it. It's... It's it's going to be a lot of learning experiences. On a lot of parts. Myself included. Yeah. But can I give a little bit more of a hint yeah okay so you guys are used to listening to us Aaron's project is going to get you used to seeing us so it's going to be a very visual thing we'll tell you exactly how so later I mean you can obviously guess it's going to be video or images but and I feel like if anybody's listened to enough of our episodes they might be able to piece it together. Yeah. What path we're going to go down. Yeah. Maybe. But enough about your project for now. We'll, as we progress, we can talk about it more. But let's go ahead and start talking about this week's episode, yeah? Yeah. Okay. So welcome back. And if you're here for the first time... Welcome to Crime and Theory, a podcast dedicated to everything outside the parameters of normal. We are your hosts, Ashley! And Erin. I still like saying it. <laughs> so, since it's summer... I'm sorry if you can hear our dog as well. But since it's the summertime, we are doing a summertime true crime. That rhymed, I didn't mean for it to, but here we are. I'm just a regular poet. And this is a true crime that happened during the summer of 1977, so 43 years ago. And I know that all of the true crime we cover is tragic. This might sound a little bit weird or detached, 
from what we normally discuss, but it's really easy to detach yourself from a case that happened a hundred plus years ago because they don't have any direct survivors or victims remaining. But 43 years ago means that a lot of people involved are still on this planet. And we want to respect those people. We want to acknowledge that victims, they themselves are people. They are not a commodity for us to point at and pick apart. Now, bad guys, we can do that all day long. Oh, definitely. Because they don't deserve our respect. But let's just keep in mind that these people involved are victims. And in this case in particular, they are children. So, trigger warning. Let's go ahead and get it out of the way. This week's episode includes harm and sexual assault befalling children if you are easily triggered. Do not finish this episode. It's our recommendation. If you want to proceed with caution, please go ahead. We welcome you with open arms. But your mental health is of the utmost importance. So you can listen to previous episodes if this is indeed your first one. We try to give trigger warnings on all the cases that involve this. And you can always come back next week and listen as well. Because next week's will be a lot more relaxed and spooky spooky but Aaron how have you been dear doing pretty good pretty good you know feeling you know super stuffed but I hope that you guys are ready and that you are ready Aaron because this week we are talking about one of the most tragic cases to ever come out of the state of Oklahoma. This week we're talking about the Camp Scott murders, aka the Girl Scout murders. Let's get started. Before we get started, all sources today are Medium.com, Ranker.com, GirlScoutMurders.com, Oklahoman.com, TimeSuck via YouTube, which is a Bad Magic production, DarkIdeas.net, TulsaWorld.com, and TalkMurderWithMe.com. I'm trying to give you guys a really high amount of energy, but I'm trying to work through a migraine at the same time of recording this. And I'm not complaining, like I'm willingly doing this, but please just try to bear with me here. Okay, look, I watch a ton of horror movies, so I'm pretty decently versed in Friday the 13th, okay? This movie is supposed to take place on June 13th, 1979, which, side note, is not a Friday. That was a Wednesday, so the title is all wrong. But... In real life, only two years prior, on June 13th, 1977, a very real horror tore apart the lives of three families. So it makes it all the more eerie. And before we really dive into it, if you're still on the fence of whether you should back out or continue now, this might help being a, this might help you in your final decision. We try to give you the clues, the details, everything about a case, but we try not to go too deep into graphic detail, especially when it comes to children. We like to keep this show PG-13 at its worst, 
and remain mostly family friendly. So if you think you can get through it and you would like to try, there is your final factor to add in. Final warning. All right. Are you ready, Aaron? I'm ready. All right, SpongeBob. (laughs) On June 12th, 1977, many girls gathered together at the Tulsa Girl Scout headquarters waiting to get on the bus where they would go to Camp Scott. The Girl Scouts were going to spend two weeks learning, forming friendships, improving on skills, doing things that kids do while enjoying a little bit of freedom from parental supervision. I mean, yeah, they were still supervised, but it's different than when you're under your parents' watchful eyes. As you can imagine, these girls were probably super excited, maybe a little bit jittery and nervous, as some of them were going away from home for the very first time, but excited. Except for one girl in particular. Her name was Denise Milner, age 10. Now, when you look this case up, you might see a girl named Doris Milner. She's the same person. Her full name was Doris Denise Milner, and she went by Denise if you look through most of the articles. Now, Michelle Hoffman, she was a counselor at the camp, or at least aiming to be one. Either way, she recalled seeing Denise talking to her mom, Betty. And Denise seemed to be a little bit in distress, I guess you would say. What I mean is Michelle could tell she was really anxious, and Betty confessed that Denise didn't want to go to camp at all, and that she was already really homesick. I think Denise and I honestly would have really understood each other. It's a feeling that, honestly, I'm familiar with. Denise didn't want to leave her mom and her sister, and she was apparently really close with that sister. Even though there was an age difference, they played together all the time, and... I guess you could say they were friends. Anyway, Michelle Hoffman approached Denise and Betty, and she tried to comfort Denise and was like, hey, how about we ride to the camp together? You can sit with me. I've got your back. And although Denise was reluctant, she did agree. And I think one of the deciding factors here was that her mom had also made a deal with her saying, why don't you just give it one night? If you still want to come home in the morning when you wake up, All you have to do is call me, and I will be right there to come get you. So I think that was enough to appease her. See, Denise had been planning on going to this camp with a group of her friends, but those friends had to back out for one reason or another, and I think maybe she felt truly alone in this adventure that she was supposed to have. That's always scary when you, at least from my point of view, like when you're planning to do something and especially with a group of friends and it's going somewhere that you've never been when you got a, a, all your pals together there's that confidence in uh numbers yeah but just the thought of like that being ripped away yeah like right out the gate yeah i could definitely understand her being apprehensive yeah yeah and same i mean i was an only child so like everything made me nervous about going anywhere because i was super dependent on my family as at that age yeah and if i had to go anywhere by myself it was full-blown panic mode the entire time so i get it and i think too 
I, I don't know from Denise's perspective, but from what I read, the counselor's perspective, they wanted to make sure that Denise had a really good time because she was one of the only, if not the only girl of color that was going to be at camp that year or right. that that time around because it was like every two weeks they would bring in a new batch of girls to go to camp. And I think because she was the only girl of color or one of the only that they thought maybe some of the other girls who obviously were white might ostracize her or she might feel like left out or didn't fit in. But thankfully, and we'll touch on this later, that was not the case. Luckily, one of the most beautiful things about kids isn't necessarily that they're colorblind. I mean, if you have eyes that can see, you can see that people have a different skin color than you if it's different, but they don't judge people based on that skin color. Right. And I think that's a really good thing because we shouldn't be judging people based on their skin color. It's dumb, you know? Absolutely not. So luckily, thankfully, this was a time in record that that wasn't the case. It didn't make Denise any less nervous, but it was more because she wanted to be home. But in her life, she was a straight A student, smart as all get out, and she worked so hard to sell enough cookies to be able to go to camp. She was described by Carla Wilhite, I think is how you say it. She was another counselor, as beautiful and radiant. And this is just my personal opinion and observation about Denise. But looking at her school photos that they have out there, that they've posted in all the newspapers for in-memoriam segments and such, you can tell that she had this level of intelligence that was beyond that of the average 10-year-old. And I don't know how to describe it, but she just looks like one of those people that had an older soul, I guess. If you believe in souls like I do, an older soul. Yeah. And honestly, I don't know what she would have grown up to be. I never knew her, obviously. And that's really sad because she looks like a person that I probably would have wanted to know. Let's say she would have grown up to be something awesome. That's what I was thinking, like maybe a doctor or a scientist, somebody that helped people, that genuinely cared about people. And I will post their images on our Instagram page as this episode drops. And maybe you guys will see it too. I don't know. But I feel like the world lost three very important people that night. But among the other campers was a girl by the name of Michelle. I don't know if it's Goose or Goose or... It's G-U-S-E. I'm just going to say Michelle. There are two Michelles. One's the counselor, one's the Girl Scout, okay? Okay. And I'll differentiate. I'll call Michelle the counselor by Hoffman. That's her last name. So that way we don't get it confused. Okay, so Counselor Hoffman. Yeah. Okay. And Michelle is the girl. Okay. She had gone to the camp a year prior She was, by all accounts, a very active child, super into sports. She loved soccer. Like, there's her soccer photo that you can find online. She just looks so proud and happy. She's got that soccer ball on her knee, and she's like, yes, I'm part of this. You know, she's she's really into sports. And apparently, she also loved botany. I mean, at least to a degree. Because before leaving for camp, she had gone to her mom for reassurance that her mom was absolutely without a doubt going to make sure her plants were taken care of and she threw in that yeah she would miss her mom of course but she was only nine so when you're nine your whole life's ahead of you you don't realize your own mortality 
so her plants kind of took precedence over yeah. Yeah. whether or not her parents were going to miss her and she was going to miss them. But that is really adorable. Like, she really cared about her plants. I know. I think it's cute. But according to Michelle's dad, when she said goodbye before she left for camp, he said it was ominous. He said that when she hugged him, it felt like she was saying goodbye, like, for the final time. And I guess in hindsight, you can read into things more, but I believe him. I think sometimes parents just know. And I think instinctively we know when it's our time. And I wish more than anything that he had been wrong. That is really sad. But in Michelle's school photo, is he in the soccer photo, she's not wearing glasses. You don't wear glasses when you play sports. It's just... Not a thing, because it's a hazard. So, in her school photo, though, she's wearing glasses, and this is the 1970s, so they're kind of big, and she's got this cute little smile, and I kind of want to cry just talking about, like, these girls' photos and the hope and innocence that they all carried because they were so young, and I don't know. I'll stop rambling, but she was absolutely adorable. Denise, Michelle, and Lori, they were all just the cutest kids. So Lori Farmer was eight and she was the youngest. They actually had it at like the camp had a cap of like you couldn't be under the age of 10 at one point to go but they lowered it and so this was Lori's first time going and she was the youngest camper at the camp and she was one of five kids so she had four brothers and sisters So she was used to being around other kids. I think she was more outgoing. And she had been trying to decide between two different camps for the summer. So Camp Scott was option one, and another camp was sponsored by the YMCA. And Lori couldn't make up her mind which one she wanted to go to. I mean, she was only eight. So her mom chose Camp Scott for her. Because time was running out to make that decision. And her mom has stated that she feels so much guilt for making that particular choice. But it wasn't her fault. I mean, honestly, how was she to know? Yeah, I was about to say, that, and, and I can get that feeling of blame because she she felt like she... She would still have her kid if she hadn't yeah, made that choice, right? But, I mean, at the end of, end of the day, I mean, you, you don't know. You no. don't... No one expects these things to happen no not at all i mean your kid wants to go to camp it's a girl scout camp when you think girl scouts you think cookies campfires counselors keeping an eye on your kid right you don't think of bad things particularly happening while at camp unless you are a horror fanatic and those horror movies didn't even exist that year so i don't know But she wasn't to blame. Absolutely not. And anybody that does blame her is, they're wrong. They're just wrong. And Lori's mom is wrong for blaming herself. And there's honestly not a lot about who Lori was as a person on the internet. Because, I mean, she was only eight. But I can describe what she looked like. And, of course, like I said, all images will be on our Instagram. In her school photo, she has this beautiful shiny hair and these pigtails and her features were still very small like that of a small child like her eyes were much larger 
like how a baby would be. You know how a baby or a toddler's eyes are larger than an adult's. Yeah. They're more doe-eyed. So Lori was like that. Her features were, her face was smaller, but her features were larger, I guess I should have said. But she was cute as a little button. And, you know, I understand that parents with a lot of kids, it's easy to say, well, you still got four more, especially if you're not a parent. But anybody who thinks like that is just dumb. Because each person is their own person. Exactly. Lori's mom still carried her in her womb. Lori's dad still conceived her. It, their life, their lives. Because every, her brothers and sisters, that whole world got shattered. Every single one of, every single life has a meaning. Except for killers. We could deal without those. And child rapists. We can deal without those too. Yeah. Well, there go the fireworks. Welcome to the show, guys. <laughs> so these girls, they get on the buses, they go to camp. Now, Camp Scott wasn't some little camp on just a few acres where you can swim in a little lake and the cabins are all right together. No, no. This camp was on 410 acres. Holy crap. Surrounded by dense forest. And there was a creek and it was really, really spacious. So much so that this camp was split into multiple units. And these units were all named after Native American tribes. It had been open since the 1920s. And it wasn't nearly as large to start with, but expanded over time. So Counselor Hoffman said that the daytime, it was beautiful out there. But it was, quote, dark and intimidating, end quote, at night. And wouldn't you know, Lori, Denise, and Michelle all got bunked together in their tent. So you've got one little girl who's terrified to be where she's at, and two girls who are pretty confident in themselves, from what I understand. But the way things worked out, it was only those three. It was supposed to be four girls per tent. But for some reason, the numbers worked out where it was only these three girls in that tent in their unit. They got put in unit eight. And... The camp didn't do cabins, I should clarify. It really was a tent. Oh, jeez. So, but they were they weren't these little pup tents. They were these really big tents on these platforms, so Right. It was spacious enough to actually be comfortable in for 2 weeks. Like they weren't these cheap little rickety tents. Right. It's not like when you see scouts on TV going camping in the woods. They held the tents. I mean, they held four cots apiece, and each unit was made up of campers' tents, and the counselors would be split up to be over the different units, and the counselors had their own tents per unit. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And the tents were set up where you could pin back the flaps and let light and fresh air in, but they were closed at night. And I already said they were in tent eight. Sorry, I said unit eight. I didn't mean for that to be... Was it unit eight? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Some pretty cool tents. I want a tent like this. I kind of want a tent like this too, but not after reading this case. So it wasn't unit eight. They were in the Kiowa unit. Kiowa being being a Native American tribe. And they were in tent eight. So I'm sorry. Let me correct myself. So they get there. Counselor Hoffman took it upon herself to take Denise to her tent personally where Denise met Michelle and Lori. And the three girls honestly hit it off quite well, according to the counselors that saw them. 
So they got settled in, they had dinner, they all had fun first night stuff happening, and then a big thunderstorm rolled in. And when I say a big thunderstorm, it was enough to put a damper on any events that were planned because basically everything takes place outside, right? I mean, it's camp. Yeah, makes sense. So the girls were sent back to their tents, and to give them something to do before lights out, they were told maybe they could write letters home and let everyone know about their first night. And I am going to read those letters, but I'm going to put that off until the very end. But Michelle Hoffman, Counselor Hoffman, came by at bedtime to say goodnight, check on the girls, and that was that. The camp was way darker than usual thanks to the storm, so I imagine it was pretty creepy. Sounds pretty creepy. And that was the last amount of normalcy that this camp would ever experience. And I mean ever. It's pretty um, uh, ominous. Yeah. For a, thun- a big old thunderstorm to happen. Yeah. So around 1.30 in the morning, it's now June 13th, campers and counselors heard moaning sounds coming from the direction of the girls' tent. Around 3 a.m., one camper heard a scream come from that general direction, while another heard a scream and someone crying the words, Mama, Mama, around the same time. So, at least one camper went and got a counselor, and they did a quick look over the area, but they didn't find anything. Here's where I'm going to throw in that Tent 8 was obscured from vision because of the showers. So this counselor could have been looking while the killer was in that tent and never saw them. And when I watched the Time Suck episode on this case, Dan Cummins made a bit of sense here. He said a lot of people blame the counselors. Like, why didn't they investigate? Why didn't they do more? And I I have to say something. These counselors were barely adults themselves. They were former Girl Scouts. That once they reached a certain age, decided they wanted to be counselors because they had such a great time. They wanted to give that experience to other kids. Right. It's not like they were 35, 40 years old and had some life experience under their belts. Also, he made a point that it was the first night there. And kids, when they're homesick, sometimes they cry. They'll cry in their sleep. They'll cry themselves to sleep. Some people are just restless sleepers in general, and they moan and groan. Some kids hear a bump in the night and immediately think it's a bear, a serial killer, or a ghost. So counselors, after some training, are probably more apt to think along these lines. I mean, you're supposed to be safe. Well, they, they, they might think, like, oh, well, that's just something to be, something to expect out of these kids. To make these noises and to panic, but it's nothing serious. Right, because look how many times these things have happened, and it has just been a bad dream or a homesick child. Right. I mean, they've been open 50 some, or almost 50 years, and no one's gotten killed here before. So what would lead you to believe that's the case? But at some point, according to the girls of Tent 7, a man came into their tent at some point in the night, pulling back their tent flap, and he shined his flashlight inside, and I guess he changed his mind about whatever it was he was going to do, closed the tent flap, and walked toward tent eight. 
Also that night, campers heard a croaking sound that sounded like a bullfrog, and they saw some weird lights out in the woods that would disappear whenever the counselors would shine their flashlights toward the wood lights, I guess you would call them. That's creepy. Right? But then when the counselors would turn their flashlights off, the lights in the woods would come back on. So it was like someone sentient maybe shining a flashlight. Now, okay, so the some some counselors were picking up some weird vibes, like something's not right, with especially with that light, those lights flicking on and off. Right. However, we also have to think about the time period this took place. This is the 70s, and I know that murderers existed. I know that crime existed, but in... Our generation, we were raised on stranger danger. Yeah. We were raised that you don't trust anybody because even the closest person to your family could hurt you. But in the 70s, I don't think it was the same general mentality. So it could have just been a bunch of rowdy teenage boys getting drunk in the woods and trying not to get caught. Like, I think that would have been more the thought path path (laughs) of... Of the counselors, then someone's going to harm the kids. Right. So that's it for what happens that night. But 6 a.m. rolls around. And Carla Wilhite, the counselor that I mentioned earlier, she gets up early to go take a shower so she can be ready before the kids get up. She's walking along the trail to the shower. Remember, tent 8 is obscured by the shower, so it's pretty close. She's walking toward the showers, and she sees something under a tree. And so her vision focuses. I think she gets a little bit closer, and she sees Denise Milner lying on top of her sleeping bag. And as soon as she saw that, she, I don't know that she dropped everything, but I imagine she probably did, turned around and ran for help. So she did the right thing. She did what any smart person would do. They don't, you're not supposed to, Creep up and, you know, poke around and try to figure things out. You go get help. If you think someone is in distress, you go get help. Right, right. So kudos on her for making the most logical... Or the best decision. Right. Yeah. Now, it was clear from the get-go that Denise was no longer alive. She was naked from the waist down. Oh, God. This tree was about 100 yards from the girl's tent, for reference, which is about 300 feet. And I usually try to find the meters, but I didn't even try with this. The crime itself is more important than the distance. So help comes along, and it was discovered that there were two other sleeping bags. And I don't know if Carla saw... I don't know if Carla saw the two other sleeping bags or not, but... Either way, the two other sleeping bags were looked into, and inside they find the bodies of Lori and Michelle. They had been zipped up in the fetal position. Oh, Lord. And I don't know about their state of dress or undress or their, or any markings or anything left behind other than the actual murder itself. The people who ran the camp, what they did was they sent for all of the girls to go home early, and they didn't tell anyone anything. They called Denise's, Lori's, and Michelle's parents, but instead of saying, your kids are dead and they've been murdered, they said that there had, they said that there had been a quote-unquote 
or an quote-unquote accident. The parents had to find out from the media that their daughters had indeed been murdered. And according to Lori's dad, the camp called their insurance company, then their attorney, then finally notified the parents. Seriously? Yeah, all of this leads to a lawsuit at one point, and I'll touch on that in a bit, but it's not even the most important thing here. And this case is so all over the place. One source says that this is what happened. One source says this is what was determined. It's it's really hard to keep a straight timeline and straight answers on everything. But after the autopsies, the official causes of death were that Lori and Michelle were killed by blunt force trauma to the head, and Denise had been beaten and strangled. It said that there it said that they were all sexually assaulted. Oh my god. Some sources say not all. Some say all, some say only one. I honestly don't know, but either way the killer is a sexual predator as well. It said that they weren't raped though, so I don't know. It's okay, all of this is disgusting and monstrous, but there was semen left at the scene. So I don't know how it got there, if it was via rape, or if it was from sadistic pleasure, if you will. Right, right. All of this info is just kind of muddled up. But either way, regardless of all of the nitty-gritty details, they were hurt in more than one way. Michelle and Denise had both been gagged, and their wrists had been bound, but Lori was not. Which, when I read this, I was like... That sounds like Lori was probably killed first, because then the killer wouldn't have had a need to restrain her. Apparently, I've done enough true crime because investigators determined just that. Then Michelle was murdered next, and finally Denise. They had determined that at least two of the girls, Lori and Michelle, had been murdered in their tent. So so the other one that was dragged off was murdered elsewhere, yes. Um, I mean, she could have been murdered in the tent, but for definite Lori and Michelle. So here are the clues. Since Lori and Michelle had been murdered in the tent, there was a lot of blood in their sleeping quarters. This killer grabbed whatever he could. So he grabbed some sheets off their beds and tried to use them to clean up the blood. Maybe it was to get rid of prints or maybe it was some weird sign of remorse I don't know, but it was weird. And during the investigation, the person they had taking the crime scene photos saw a very clear boot print. And they snapped a shot of it. The crime scene had been contaminated while waiting for proper authorities and such. And it wasn't officially cordoned off until after they showed up. So people were kind of trekking all over the place. And they thought maybe the photographer had stepped in the blood and saw his own boot print. But the photographer swore that the boot print was there before anyone else came in. So it must have belonged to the killer. And the size of the boot print, for future reference, was a nine and a half. And that will be very important. So tuck that away in your brain for a bit. And remember that the killer, or probably the killer, popped into tent seven. And he had a flashlight. Remember, he's showing it inside. Oh, yeah. that's So this guy was looking through the tents. Right. The killer left the flashlight behind. 
and it supposedly had a fingerprint on it, and inside the flashlight were newspaper scraps. And this flashlight had been modified to only emit a small amount of light, so as probably to not attract attention. So this says he went there with a purpose. The fingerprint on the flashlight did not match anyone at the camp, of course. And also at the scene, there was black duct tape found. There was the rope used to bind the girl's wrists. And there was a long black hair caught in the duct tape that did not belong to any of the girls. Oh. And as I said, there was semen found. It was on a pillowcase near the girls' bodies. The gag found on Denise had been pre-sewn, and the tape, rope, and flashlight were all brought from outside the camp with the killer, showing full premeditation. Now here's the thing. Some people theorize that it may have been multiple killers, because the knots on the ropes were tied differently, and there were Two different weapons determined to have been used on the girls, according to the autopsy, and the blows indicated both left and right-handed swings. Huh. At least according to the source that I read. I don't... If that's wrong, please let me know and we will revise that. So even with this evidence, police only really ever pursued the idea of a single killer. There was a guy who owned a farm named Jack Schroff... The police were like, okay, location is close, he's suspicious, yada yada. They found almost identical rope and duct tape on his property. But Jack said, this is brand new because I was burglarized and my rope and my tape were taken by someone unknown. So what you just found is a replacement for what I had before. And when they checked it out, Jack had an alibi, and it was legit. And I guess to completely clear his name, Jack decided he was going to take a polygraph, and he passes. But the newspapers were posting... I'm sorry, guys, if you can hear my goose snoring. I'm so sorry. These microphones are so sensitive. But the newspapers were posting really nasty articles about him, making him out to be the killer. So people started to harass him, and it ate away at his mental state to the point that Jack had to be hospitalized. Oh, wow. Other suspects were William Bill Stevens, who allegedly confessed to the deed in 1979 while serving a life sentence for kidnapping and raping a teacher. Someone recalled seeing a man who looked like Bill on the morning of the murders with blood on his hands. But did the cops really dig into that? Of course not. Then there was Carl Lee Myers, who allegedly had an IQ of 90, thanks to a childhood head injury. This guy kidnapped, raped, and choked a 12-year-old girl in the summer of 1977, so same year. Mm. And he did not kill her. He choked her, but she lived. He even drove her back to town, where she was able to report it. He was also suspected in the murder of 13-year-old Julie Miller, who disappeared two weeks before the Camp Scott murders. He seems like a legitimately good suspect, but for one reason or another, the cops didn't really take him too seriously either, because 
Not a lot more about him is known in this regard. This guy was released from prison in 1990, and he went on to murder and rape two more people. And I promise I'm going to get to the biggest suspect in all of this. But in 2011, a fellow prisoner for embezzlement and fraud, so he wasn't a violent criminal, John Russell announced that he was going to make a movie about the murders. He decided he was going to do this when Myers had confessed to the killings in 1979. So that is two people confessing to this crime, I believe, even in the same year. Yes, same year. So that definitely sounds like the work of multiple killers. Not necessarily. There are a lot of people who confess to crimes in order to get attention from the media. Ah, okay. But there still could have been multiple murderers. I don't know if these two had worked together or if they even knew each other. I mean, yeah, they were in the same area, but we don't know everybody that lives in our town. That is true. And in 1989, a man named Reverend Gerald Manley called in a tip saying he thought he knew who did it. He told them that he went to the camp with four men who claimed to need his, quote, Christian influence, end quote, and Reverend Manley said he saw the body of one girl and the two sleeping bags that appeared to hold the bodies of the two other girls, but police have not been able to confirm this bizarre confession. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, if he saw it, one, what? Well, no, never mind. Because he just explained why he was out there, which makes me... I think me... it had something to do, to do with uh, his car breaking down or something, yeah. and these guys were... I don't know. Which that makes me wonder, what if that was the lights that the counselor saw? You know, that's not a bad thought. I don't know, but it's definitely possible. And two, if he did, in fact, see at least one of the bodies... Why didn't he take off to the counselors and and let them know right then and there instead of them waking up to or it? Or once he got back to town, go to a payphone and call it in? Yeah. I don't know. Unless he felt threatened. But even if that's the case, why did it take him so long? It took him 12 years to call in this tip. It should not have taken someone who claims to be a man of God to do the right thing after yeah. 12 years. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm not passing judgment. I don't, I don't know his reason. I just, from what I'm trying to fathom, can't understand it. And honestly, I'm just getting all of these stories out of the way. Because almost from the get-go, police set their sights on one very specific person. And ten days after the crime, police named their prime suspect. Jean Leroy Hart. He was a prisoner who was on the lam at the time of the murders. Hart was 33 years old and was a convicted burglar and rapist when the murders happened, and he had been hiding out for the last four years evading police. So either he was really good at being sneaky, or the cops were not doing their job. With how this year's going, I'm going to go with the latter, but I don't know. (laughs) Now, police did know that he was hiding in the area, but they could not catch him for whatever reason. This was his second escape, by the way. He was supposed to be serving out his remaining 
300 years. Holy crap. His sentence was 305, to be specific. How do you get a sentence that long? Well, he was convicted for raping two pregnant women, tying them up, putting tape over their faces, and taking them to the middle of nowhere to die. Thankfully, one of them was able to break free and get help, and Hart was arrested. But here's the wild part. He was caught, escaped jail, was caught again, then paroled for raping women, by the way. Paroled. What is with law enforcement? You know what? Let's not even say law enforcement. What is with the law? But then, ever the criminal, he burglarized a place was caught and punished for violating his parole. And that's what I gathered. But if that's the case, so you're telling me that you can violate multiple women and the law says slap on the wrist, but you're okay. But if you violate your parole, you get sentenced to 305 years for everything? Shouldn't you have just been given 305 years right out of the gate? Yeah, like the the first time you raped two pregnant women and left them to die yeah and remember that his he's raped two pregnant women that says he has a type so i'm not saying he's guilty or innocent in this regard i'm just saying it seems like he goes after a very specific type of person but then he escaped again and now we're back to the camp scott murders So, besides the fact that Hart was a genuine, bona fide, all-around Cretan, some hunters had stumbled across some caves. I think there were like three caves found altogether, but don't hold me to that. But in these caves, there were items that may have been stolen from the camp, like a pair of women's glasses, and I believe there was a glasses case as well. And there were newspapers that matched the newspapers from the flashlight. And yeah, I know literally anyone could have been in this cave, but they also came across some photographs, like random pictures with women in them. They're not pornographic photos by any means, just women. Hart, while he managed to stay in prison for the first few years, he worked in the prison's photo lab, and these photos were linked to him. Uh Uh-huh. There was a roll of tape that matched the tape used at the crime scene. So the missing tape from the, was it a a farm? Yeah. And these caves were less than three miles from the camp, so easy access to the site. The police also noticed that this area was close to where Gene Hart's mom lived, and it made sense that he would stick close to home. But while the cave did kind of point to Hart, it wasn't enough to really convict anyone. But in my opinion, here's the creepiest thing they found. It was literal writing on the wall. Inside the cave, someone had written 77-6-17, which is June 17, 1977. The killer was here. Bye-bye, fools. What the crap? So this was like on a stupid level premeditated If it was indeed the killer, yes. But you also have to remember, this is a highly, it's a high-profile case. It's all over the media. I mean, it's Girl Scouts. Right. Girl Scouts is supposed to be, like, the epitome of wholesomeness and 
female independence and whatnot in the 70s, right? Right. Teaching women how to be survivalists and grow to be their own person. So it was pretty sensationalized. However, it very well could have been written by the maniac that did this. I mean, it was awfully close to the crime scene after all. And we are going to get back to Gene Hart in a minute, their prime suspect. But there's more that needs to be that needs to be explained that's going on here. Hart is out there in the world somewhere. People are looking for him. They bring in these tracking dogs from Pennsylvania that they brought in on the 16th. And these dogs have like the best super sniffers or whatever. Like they're supposed to be cream of the crop. These dogs sniff out the scene and they lead police to the conclusion that the killer or killers probably passed through the counselor's tent to get to tent number eight. Is that not creepy or what? And I don't believe in the supernatural very much, but these next few events are very coincidental and I don't believe in this many coincidences happening at one time either. It was around the time that these dogs showed up that rumors started about a Cherokee medicine man who had placed a curse on these tracking dogs to kill him. And I don't think Native Americans or indigenous people are bad people in the slightest. Like, that's not where I'm going with this. I'm just reporting what the rumors were and all of this, okay? So Gene Hart was apparently of Cherokee blood. And from what I read, the tribe wanted to protect him. And I don't think they believed he would do such atrocious things. And truthfully, given how white men have treated Native people for centuries, it would be pretty easy to believe that maybe the police were lying. So if this medicine man did in fact place a curse, it was probably to keep the police from getting too close. So on the 18th, one dog wound up dying from heat prostration, which is Basically to say that this dog died from being overheated. Jeez. Then two days later, another dog ran into traffic suddenly and died. What? Yeah. And I don't remember what happened to the third dog. But I think something did. I just didn't write it down. But it's just a lot of coincidences and it's really eerie. It is really eerie. And on the same day that I mentioned, June 18th, when the first dog died of heat prostration, the local sheriff, Sheriff Weaver, said that they had found a murder weapon. But then OSBI, or Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, and DA Sid Wise were like, dude, what are you even talking about? I mean, there seemed to be a ton of miscommunication between everyone and on top of articles contradicting each other it's just this whole case is just chaos but Sid Wise said that they had no suspects at the time Sheriff Weaver said that they had one suspect and OSBI said that they had three suspects just to kind of further prove that nobody was really communicating with anybody at this point a lot of wire crossing you are correct i don't even think that there were (laughs) wires to cross like they didn't have anything to do with one another it feels like all i have to say is guys get your story straight (laughs) and on june 23rd someone reported that someone matching the description of gene hart had been seen near the camp so the cops really buckled down on their search for gene hart they 
basically put all their eggs in one basket about it being him in the first place. And they start this manhunt that was made up of 200 law enforcement officers and more than 400 volunteers that covered a four mile area. But here's the deal. Some of these volunteers were just there, I think, to be part of it. I guess to just kind of say I was there and I helped in case anything came to light. Kind of makes you wonder, I mean, because that is an awful lot of volunteers. It makes you wonder if at least one of them was... The killer? The killer. I mean, maybe. But even even if they weren't, some were still criminals to a degree. (laughs) Because some of these people wound up being arrested for being drunk and... Remember, this is 1977. It wasn't legal anywhere yet. Possession of pot. Oh. They even bring in this heat detecting equipment, and it winds up being absolutely pointless. Like, they they brought it in to find Gene Hart because, you know, he was a live human putting off body heat, right? Right. The FBI sends in 40 agents to jump in on this case. So now everybody and their mom is involved. During all of this, Ella Mae Buckskin, which is Jean Hart's mother, claimed that the sheriff had harassed her and was the one who planted those photographs because he needed a suspect. Remember, he came out and he was like, we have a suspect. Right. Only one. So I can kind of see how maybe that's the case. I'm not saying he was a crooked sheriff. I don't know. But I like to keep my mind open to think that it could be one way or the other. Especially given the law enforcement we have to see. And how much corruption really does take place within our own towns and cities. But this case gets more bizarre, okay? After everyone packed up and went home on July 1st, this part gives me chills. It is so creepy. Remember, Hart's still out in the world, okay? Somewhere. The police have not found him. They brought in volunteers. They brought in all this equipment. They still can't find this guy. He is evading police on like an expert level. But the OSBI director, Jeff Laird, made an announcement. He said, quote, What was thought to be fingerprints are not fingerprints, end quote. And that was that. This was after multiple people came out with statements saying that prints had been found. There, were some, there was one clear one, some were smudged, but there were fingerprints, Right. Yeah. And this guy comes out and he's like, no, there's not. There's nothing anymore. So I'm wondering what happened there. Someone really dropped the ball on the fingerprints? I mean, even we know what a fingerprint looks like, though. Yeah. And if they're not fingerprints, then what are they? Or did they exist at all? Like, did somebody make up the fingerprint thing? Or did evidence get lost intentionally? Mm -hmm. I don't know. By then, the camp has officially shut down. It will never reopen. It is done. So that's, it took this murder and that was enough to call it a day. No, thank you. They had security on this property and be prepared to get spooked, Aaron. The security men on this property. At the camp. At the camp. The security officers are patrolling the area, okay? Making sure that nobody's trying to sneak onto the property and get a taste of the macabre, if you will. And they see what they think is a person out in the woods. Now, remember, people are seeing things out in these woods all the time, apparently. So they go to investigate, 
and they find nothing. But when they come back, on the camp director's house steps sits a bag. No. Inside were wet shoes and socks that had belonged to Denise Milner. Like, I I literally just got chills. (laughs) That is so messed up. Agreed. But that's not it either. Other creepy stuff happened around this property too. Like, there would be wet footprints left in the sand, but they could never find anyone. And doors that had been shut up tight would be found standing open. So there was some someone patrolling this area that was never seen, almost like they were invisible. I mean, I don't believe that that was the case, but someone super good at evading detection was lurking around that property, and that is so creepy. And please understand, I'm not saying that this is a paranormal case. I'm saying that there was a very real person lurking around there, and that is so disturbing and so creepy. Super creepy. So what the guards did was they took to tying strings between the trees in order to see which strings would be broken to find which direction the intruder was coming from. And when they would go check, the strings would be broken. But again, nobody was ever found. Whoever this is, is really messed up in the head to be playing like these mind games. Yes, 100%. But that's the last amount of spine-chilling factor that I'm going to add in here, I think. But at one point, two of the families filed a civil lawsuit against the Magic Empire Council, which is the Girl Scouts, for $5 million because, understandably so, they wanted to hold someone accountable. They believed that the Girl Scouts' employees had been negligent in keeping their daughters safe. However, at the end of the day, they did lose this case. And finally, finally, it is now April 6th, 1978, 10 months after the murders, Jean Hart is finally found in a shed at a home in Cherokee County, Oklahoma, and is arrested without incident. He stood trial for these murders, and even though there's no real hard evidence, just logical speculation and circumstantial evidence, In this trial, it came to light that the footprint did not match Hart. Remember, I said the boot print was a nine and a half. Right. Hart's shoe size ranged from 11 to 11 and a half. So. It couldn't have been him that stepped in the blood. I'm not saying he didn't commit these crimes. I'm saying that it was not him that left that print. I mean, unless he somehow managed to really cramp his feet into them shoes. And I don't think that's logical. And the fingerprint that did but didn't but did exist, I don't know. Apparently, there was a fingerprint that did exist that did not match him. And the swabs taken from the girls were similar to Hart but inconclusive. And while an expert said that the hair found at the scene looked exactly like Hart's hair... There was no real proof. Like, you can look at a hair follicle or a hair shaft and look at someone else's and say, oh, yeah, it's pretty close. But that's not even admissible in court anymore, I don't think. You have to have, like, hard DNA evidence. But regardless of what happened in the trial, after some deliberation, Gene Hart was acquitted. Now, he was sent back to prison because he still had 300 years left. Right, right. But he didn't have any more tacked on to 
is already lengthy. Extremely long sentence. Right. But all of this was to be short-lived, since on June 4th, nine days before the anniversary of the girl's death, Hart collapsed after exercising in the prison and died. You're just staring at me with this, like, bewildered look of everything I mean, that's happening. All, all I can think of is, like, like my mind went right back to that curse on those dogs. Right, but here's the thing. That curse was probably placed to protect Gene, not harm him. So I don't think that anyone cursed him to die. I think he just had a heart attack, but still, it's... Creepy. It's wild. So we're probably never going to know the truth. In 1989... DNA was still in its infancy, and they tested the sample that was left at the crime scene, and it came back inconclusive. But it was a 1 in 7,700 match for Native American DNA. Remember, Gene Hart was Cherokee. That's right. And they tried to get more of a conclusive answer back in 2008, after everything's been, you know, more developed. But by then, the DNA was too degraded. Ah, man. Now, while Hart was going through this trial, people legitimately believed that he was innocent and even made the efforts of selling t-shirts to raise money for his defense. But he's still a bad guy. Right. I mean, don't get me wrong. If he didn't do it, he didn't do it. But he did do other crimes. Yeah. At some point in all of this ordeal, it came out that Michelle Hoffman, Counselor Hoffman, had been at the camp back in April of 1977, about two months before this incident. She was at the camp for a cadet weekend, and she had been out of her tent and came back to find hers and the other girls' bags, quote, scattered all over the tent and some outside, end quote. And she had brought a box of donuts with her, which had now been fully emptied thanks to this vandal. But inside the box, she found a small... She found some small notebook pages. The first page said only the word kill. And the second note she found was more ominous. It said, we're on a mission to kill three girls. Side note is that it may have said four, again, contrasting and contradicting articles. Now, is this before the murders? Yes. Yes, by two months. But some girls that were there wound up confessing to writing these notes, and these notes were then literally thrown out. But did they confess to vandalizing the tent and the belongings? Like, I don't know. I need answers on that. If Definitely. And why did the police only settle on Hart? I mean, even if he was guilty, there was evidence pointing to multiple killers. And they just may have let another person walk. Yeah, I was, I was about to say... That note said, where? Well, we don't know that that was actually the killer. That could have been a prank pulled by the girls. That's what I'm saying. Okay. We're not talking about the note anymore. I'm talking about the actual evidence of left and right-handed attacks. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, this guy was definitely not omni... What's the word? Ambidextrous? Yeah, yeah, that word. Ambidextrous. (laughs) So I don't know, like, there's a lot of muddled information, crossed wires, just everything. And I don't know how much of this evidence that we're given is even legitimate. 
So I don't know how we're supposed to ever reach a real conclusion, but I hope, I hope that at least someday, if this is tucked away as a cold case, or if it's even closed, that maybe it will eventually be reopened and looked into. Yeah. But on July 9th, 1977, not even a month after the murders, a man named Dr. Robert Phillips offered a criminal profile in the Tulsa Tribune. Now, we're running long here, but if you go to girlscoutmurders.com, there is a full profile that you can read through and a bunch of evidence and such if you have the desire to investigate yourselves. So maybe we'll sit down and go through it together. That'd be interesting. it guys the killer either died in prison or may still be out there in the world or killers it's horrifying to think that a monster still lurks out there that is probably blending into the public every single day and even if the killer did die in prison again what about a partner they could still be out there that is terrifying i think that there needs to be a more thorough look into this case personally it's just my opinion i'm just a podcaster what do i know but but i i agree but that partner could still be out there if they indeed existed and i promised to read their final letters home from camp because we need to remember these girls they were innocent and beautiful little souls who never in a million years would have deserved this fate so denise wrote to her mom saying dear mom I don't like camp. It's awful. And she spells it A-L-F-W-L, which is really cute. The first day it rained. I have three new friends named Glenda, Lori, and Michelle. Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see Cassie and everybody. Your loving child, Denise Milner. Michelle wrote to her aunt, or aunt, depending on where you're from, saying, Dear Aunt Karen, how are you? I'm fine. I'm riding from camp. We can't go outside because it's storming. Me and my tent mates are in the last tent in our unit. My tent mates are Denise Milner and Lori Farmer. My room is in shades of purple. Love, Michelle. And Lori wrote to her entire family saying, Dear Mom and Dad and Misty and Joe and Chad and Kathy, We're just getting ready to go to bed. It's 7.45. We're at the beginning of a storm and having a lot of fun. I've met two new friends, Michelle Goose and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them. It started raining on the way back from dinner. We're sleeping on cots. I couldn't wait to write. We're all writing letters now, because there's hardly anything else to do. With love, Lori. So, as always, the channel is open for you to communicate with us. Tell us what you think. Do you think that Jean Hart was a lone murderer? Or do you think that this sick and twisted human being, whoever they may have been, did this alone or had a partner like what are your thoughts and opinions feel free to write in at crime and theory at gmail.com 
That's C-R-I-M-E-A-N-D-T-H-E-E-R-I-E at gmail.com. And if you like us and want to see hints and clues for upcoming episodes or see images from previous episodes, you can find us on Instagram at Crime and Theory Pod. And there is a highlight that will show you where to find us on other social media platforms. And we will see you guys next week, I guess. So, Aaron, do you have any thoughts, questions, concerns, comments? I don't even know where to start. This is it's all across the board. This is heartbreaking. That absolutely what happened to these. Poor little children. Yeah. And I I hope that some kind of justice is given to... The families. Yeah. I do too. And I hate to think that there are such monsters out in the world, but unfortunately, that is the world we live in. I just don't think I can ever understand why anybody would hurt a child. Yeah. You know... Especially to premeditate it to such... A degree? Yeah. All I can think of are my cousin's kids. And, like, I know we don't have kids of our own, but... And I know that they're my cousin's kids, but they are like my niece and nephew. Yeah. And any other children that come into the world are going to be like my niece or nephew or, or whatever they want to be called or whatever I call them, you know? So... I can't fathom any harm ever befalling them. Like, I'm not a parent, and it makes me sick to my stomach to think of anybody hurting a child. Yeah. And that, to that degree. Like, don't get me wrong, I understand accidents happen. Kids fall and scrape their knees and stuff, right? But that's not at the hand of anybody else. And I hate that there are genuine monsters in this world and I know I'm just rambling on at this point and it's so hard to fathom how much uh, how broken hearted the, the, the families of these children have to be yeah I mean that's the thing yeah you're doing the most damage to the physical victims but you're leaving behind a trail of victims and a trail of heartache as well and you're just leaving a path of destruction how can anybody see how how can anybody be so warped and mentally mutated into such a foul beast to cause this i i don't know It just bothers me so much. Like, I can say it all day long, but I will never be able to express how much it bothers me. But I'm going to have to stop because we are running very long and I've got to edit this. (laughs) So, is there anything else you need to say, Aaron? Our heart goes out to all these families that have been hurt. And not just the families of this particular case, but families of cases long past and ones that we don't even know about yet that we may cover in the future our hearts go out to all of you and we will never understand what you've gone through but please know that we hope that some form of justice comes if it hasn't already so in that case stay safe this week if you feel like something is wrong and that you shouldn't do something or go somewhere listen to that gut instinct and as always 
Aaron, what do we say? Don't get haunted. We will see you guys next Thursday for a much lighter and spookier episode.